Hello, and welcome to the Save the Water podcast. Save the Water is a U.S.-based nonprofit. Our mission is to conduct water research to raise awareness about water contamination and its human and environmental health impacts. In this podcast, we interview professionals in the water industry to learn more about water quality issues and some of the solutions they use to combat water contamination. So my name is Brittany, and let's begin. Today, we have Jennifer Thompson, who works as an environmental specialist for Brevard County in Florida. Hey, Jennifer. Welcome to our Save the Water podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. Let's start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself. So my family moved around a lot when I was little, and so pretty much lived up and down the East Coast of the United States, curled around into Texas, uh, Arkansas, Pennsylvania, just a whole loop-de-loop. And so that enabled me to really see the the different changes uh, depending on the area I lived in, whether it was mountains or outside of D.C., all the the different habitats and climates and how people interacted uh, with the world around them. And so I decided to, uh, as a little child, get kissed by a sea lion and knew I was definitely going to be a marine biologist when I I grew up. And uh, so I went to Florida Tech in 1998 and so moved here to Florida, pursuing that career and through classes realized that ecology was really more where my interests lied. So I got a Bachelor of Science in both marine biology and ecology, um, thinking that the the interactions were really where my interest lies. So when I graduated, got um, a job up in city of Titusville and then in city of Melbourne working in laboratories for the drinking water and groundwater quality monitoring. Uh, Now I currently am an environmental specialist at the Brevard County Natural Resources Management Office. And so right now I'm testing the the water quality within the various water bodies we have here in the county. Uh, Also some of the internal projects that we have created uh, with our engineers and uh, monitoring staff and biologists to improve stormwater quality into the Indian River Lagoon primarily. Uh, And then I also inspect properties for their own stormwater uh, systems, whether it's businesses, homeowners, and even the county-owned properties. So I've been quite busy since graduation here in Florida. And what is the environment like in Florida? It's pretty unique. We have have a lot of water. Uh, We are the, uh, for as far as the United States, the second largest state in America for the tidal coastline. Uh, just behind Alaska. So it's a lot of coastline uh, and a lot of water. We've got low elevation. Um, but now you pair that with about 56 inches of rain each year. You know, that's why we have so much water here. I uh, just kind of sits. Um, under the ground, we have an aquifer. And about 90% of Floridians use that for drinking water. Uh, we also share that same uh, Floridian aquifer with, with some people up in Georgia even. Uh, it's huge. And so when you mix that in with some of our superficial water, uh, we've got rivers and lakes out here, along with the Indian River Lagoon, uh, which is an estuary of national significance, according to the EPA. Um, And unfortunately, it's also an impaired water body. So we have uh, an incredible amount of ecotourism, uh, especially here along the East Coast. Um, The last 
year, they had approximated it to $7.6 billion worth of economic value. Um, and about 30 million of that is just for the fisheries. Uh, we provide about 50% of the annual fish harvesting along the East Coast right here in uh, the Indian River Lagoon. So that water body in of itself is about 156 miles long and on average about three and a half feet deep. So very, very unique um, as an estuary. So you've got salt water from the ocean mixing in with a lot of our rivers uh, we've got little creeks and then, of course, the runoff from homes. Uh, so that makes very, again, unique uh, habitats. So we have what we call forests. So we've got like hammock forests and salt marshes, mangrove forests, and even submerged habitats, um, primarily with seagrass. Uh, we've got quite a few different types of seagrass that grow along the lagoon. And because it is so different than other areas, uh, again, that's why EPA distinguished us as an estuary of national significance. We have about 2,200 animal species and about 2,100 plant species. So we've got a lot going on. Um, I'm sure anyone listening to this knows of manatees and dolphins, sharks, rays. Uh, that's primarily, you know, those are our big marine mammals. Uh, but we also have the highest number of nesting sea turtles in the Western Hemisphere, uh, right along our lagoon. So not only is it amazing to watch, uh, but it's super important to populations of, of endangered animals across the world, really. Um, and our lagoon also, again, because it's only three and a half feet deep, it makes it perfect nursery. So we get a lot of uh, fish, uh, sports fish, sharks, um, again, stingrays, uh, skates, and they, they basically uh, spawn. They have little babies in our lagoon, and so the little guys. So we're not talking you know, eight foot bull sharks or anything in our lagoon, it's the tiny guys. And so they hang out in our lagoon, they eat the smaller critters. And then eventually as animals get bigger, they go to uh, some of our inlets and they go back out into the ocean. Uh, and then of course, some of the small crustaceans, they'll, they'll hang out in our lagoon. But uh, those, those inlets, we actually only have five of them up and down, again, 156 miles, we have five inlets, that's it. So the water that's in the lagoon is relatively stagnant. We don't have tide um, like most other places do. So if you're used to coastlines, you always know, don't go to the beach uh, at high tide. If you've got winds, it gets a little rough. Um, in the lagoon though, because we have a barrier island that protects it essentially from, uh, from that big tidal change and waves from the ocean. So the lagoon is really just driven by wind. Uh, the moon has no effect on us other than right at those five inlets. So again, a, a very unique situation that we have. Um, and you know, it's amazing, people can paddleboard or kayak, because uh, it's pretty calm conditions and you can really see the wildlife all around you. What is a watershed and what are the issues that impact them? It's essentially the area where all your water drains to a common water body. So it doesn't matter if you're a hundred miles from the ocean or one mile from the ocean, we're all tied to that water body. Um, so anything that's hitting our, our pavement, our ground, all of it, we're all connected. So um, probably one of the biggest, uh, biggest challenges here, have that runoff coming from people's homes or really any developed uh, impervious surface, you're going to have problems. So literally anything on the ground is now getting washed into uh, the, the nearest water body. And here in Brevard County, uh, we've got what we have as the Great Divide. 
Uh, it's basically a ridge and it goes north south. And so anything that hits the east side of that ridge flows directly into the lagoon, uh, or if it's the barrier island, of course, going to the ocean. And on the west side, it flows into the St. John's River. So when that happens with all these people and all this development, uh, what we've seen is uh, like algae blooms. And with algae blooms, there's bacteria that live in there. Um, so unfortunately, we've been hit here recently, especially with green and brown algae blooms. And within those are, are different bacteria types, uh, even dinoflagellates, um, pyridinium, that's the one that does the bioluminescence, which again, when you're kayaking looks absolutely beautiful, but <laughs> when it's in bloom concentrations, it's, uh, it's not good for the environment. Um, so as those happen, the algae actually uses oxygen. Um, it doesn't produce more than it uses. Um, so at night, it continually sucks that oxygen in the water bodies. And so it's draining that dissolved oxygen uh, in the lagoon or creeks, rivers, everything that's connected to it. Um, and so that's when we run into fish kills. And so we've definitely seen our fair share of fish kills. Um, most of them here recently have been small scale. Uh, we had some real big ones back in 2018 and uh, 2011 that uh, killed off literally millions of fish across Florida. Um, and so when algae blankets essentially the, uh, the top, the surface of the water or the first maybe foot of that water column, uh, it blocks the sunlight. And so we were talking earlier about the seagrass. Um, we have that, that habitat in our Indian River Lagoon and we experienced about 60% seagrass loss back from uh, 2011. And so we're trying to rebuild that now, but seagrass is our indicator species. And that's a term used by EPA. Uh, it's a measurement of health, essentially, uh, biological. And so when seagrass is thriving and growing, that means our lagoon is of good water quality. Uh, however, again, we've, we've lost so much uh, that that also is food for manatees, it's habitat for uh, shellfish. It's, so it's, it's a, yeah, not to mention, of course, improving the water quality in of itself. Um, so instead of seagrass, you get these algae blooms, you get these dead fish, and that eventually, as, as both the algae and the fish die out, they sink to the bottom and they create this very interesting sediment, uh, as opposed to nice pretty sand that you're used to on the, the bottom of any water body, we have what's called muck. And muck is an extremely fine sediment. Um, it's silky soft, uh, but boy, it stinks to high heavens. <laughs> and it's essentially just all that dead material, um, whether it's uh, animal or plant. So a lot of people don't think of, say, oak leaves or maple leaves as, as litter. It's not litter, but it's also not good for a water body. Once it stays in a, again, a, a lagoon, a river, even a, a water pond by your house, once it dies and it sinks to the bottom, it's going to deteriorate, it's going to biodegrade, but it doesn't go anywhere. It stays there, it settles. And so that actually actively lets out nutrients. So uh, nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, it's, it's just sitting there, it's dead. It's not doing anyone any good. Um, so it's taking up part of the water column, making the water shallower and uh, algae and, and bacteria love hot water. <laughs> so it's making it even worse there but the muck actually increases the nutrients of that water body. Uh, and then that's just food for more algae and bacteria to grow. So it's this vicious cycle. Um, so that's one of our, our legacy products is uh, and, and problem 
here in Brevard County is all the muck in the lagoon. And again, a lot of the stormwater ponds by people's homes, you don't see it, so you don't think about it. And things like nutrients, you don't see in the water. You know, your, your water may look slightly greenish, um, but if you actually study the water, all those nitrogen and phosphorus nutrients, they're food for algae and bacteria, um, making it worse. And so you'll slowly see uh, a cycle, they call it eutrophication. It's essentially a water body dying. Uh, there's not enough oxygen to sustain life um, and all the food that's any other plant material, your base producers are dying off. And so your, your water body will eventually die. Um, we, we had that happen again back in 2011, pretty hard and we have been getting better, but uh, it's still a continual problem. Uh, we call it a legacy load because it's not like that muck happened yesterday. It's 50 years of people living here and having leaves and twigs and fish and moss and whatever fall into that water body and die. Um, it just kind of sits there. So how is that being monitored currently? We have several agencies um, that, as opposed to just Brevard County, we have agencies here in Florida that recognize that water doesn't know boundaries. That's, that's cute that that's in one city and we're next door, but water travels everywhere and so does muck. Um, so we have across the lagoon agencies that are studying that. Um, they take depth measurements. They look at if there's any projects in the area that perhaps reroute water patterns uh, and flow, or if we dredge. And that's one of the, the big, unfortunately, it's got a big dollar amount associated with it, but dredging is the process of essentially vacuuming up that sediment. Uh, the bad part about muck is that not much can grow on it. Uh, certainly nothing we want. Um, but yeah, that seagrass cannot grow in muck. It needs hard, real sandy soils. Um, so when we vacuum it up, uh, then they, they dry it, they take away any of the contaminants, and they actually use that for fertilizers. Um, some of the sod farms actually use it. Uh, the landfill uses it to make paved ways for the trucks to go up. Um, a couple of the other agricultural places will use it as well. Um, so we try to get rid of it. Um, and that's, again, that's something that there's a organization called the Indian River Lagoon Council, and they look over the, uh, I believe it's five counties, maybe six, uh, that are up and down the lagoon. And so all of us kind of fund that program and we do joint projects. So as opposed to Brevard County, my employer, we're only able to do projects in Brevard County. Um, so what we do is what we're able to do, <laughs> um, as opposed to some of these larger agencies, the Marine Resources Council, is another um, that has helped out and, and right now actually conducting a study about where the, the largest deposits of muck are located. That way we know uh, and other agencies know where to target some of those dredging projects. Um, and then also the influences upstream. Why is there so much muck by this particular river that's entering the lagoon, but not the other one just north of it? Uh, it helps us assess maybe some of the practices from businesses, homeowners, um, again, some of the agriculture that's out here, what is truly adding to the problem? And it, so it helps us identify the hotspots. You mentioned one of the issues that are facing the Florida watershed is stormwater. What is stormwater? So any water droplet that's hitting the ground, um, whether it's 
on impervious surfaces like driveways, sidewalks, roadways, highways, uh, or pervious, which is all of your, your more natural soils. So grass, uh, dirt, and then of course it can always land back in the water. Um, so stormwater is part of our water cycle. Again, we'll flash back, was that third grade, I think? <laughs> water cycle. Um, so as, it, as the precipitation comes down in whatever form, eventually it melts and, uh, and will become just liquid water. Um, so we have here in Florida, it's a little bit different than most of the other states in America. So again, with 56 inches of rain each year, it is, imagine trying to capture all that and treat it. It would be absolutely impossible. We'd have wastewater treatment plants in every corner of every street. Um, so instead, what Florida has decided to do is separate it. So your, your sewer treatment uh, or septic tanks, whatever you have in your home, that is in, in an individual pipe and it goes to the wastewater treatment plant and it is cleaned up. Uh, we make recycled, uh, reclaimed water and give that back out to the community to use uh, instead of drinking water for uh, irrigation. But the other portion of that is the real storm water, the, the rain water that we get down here. And so we've got curb inlets, uh, basically just little rectangular cutouts on the sides of roads. And those pipes go directly to the nearest water body. Um, so we've got a couple of different systems that we use. Uh, some of them, like for businesses that are kind of small, instead of having pipes, you know, if it's just a parking lot of eight cars, uh, and, and one small building, it's not necessary to have a huge pond. So what they do is they'll have something called a dry retention area. And it's essentially just a lower uh, semicircle kind of cut out in their uh, landscaping. And so anytime it does rain, that's where it'll flow is directly to that dry retention area. And the way they're designed is within 72 hours, the ground recharges. So that water is gonna drain back into the groundwater and become part of the cycle down there. Um, soil naturally filters water, along with, of course, vegetation, so any of the grasses that are out there. And because, again, our aquifer is underground, that's where most of our drinking water comes from here in Florida, it's important to have areas like that. Um, and then we've got the ponds, of course, and that's if you ever fly to Orlando uh, or Miami, that's what you see, is all the little teeny tiny pockets of water literally everywhere. And those are called either a, a retention or detention pond. Uh, so a retention pond, usually you see those in people's backyards. They don't share with their neighbors and it's just, just a pond and it's gonna stay there. It doesn't uh, overflow anywhere. The water just kind of hangs out right there. Um, and it slowly percolates into the ground, um, but, but primarily it's, it's gonna be there to stay. And so they look at elevation and the type of soil you have and uh, they engineer it that way water will constantly be there, but maybe not a large amount. Um, and usually that's more like for flooding purposes. We wanna make sure no one's, no one's swimming to their house. Um, the other kind was the detention pond. And so that is mostly what you see out here in Florida. And it's essentially a treatment train. Uh, so water comes into one pond, it's maybe on the east side of an HOA, a neighborhood. And then it flows and you'll see a little box. Uh, it's called a control box or control structure. And so it will rise up the water level and it's got a little device on there to keep out litter, uh, algae, anything that's floating on the top. And so only clean water goes inside that. And then that travels to the next pond. 
or, or river or wherever it is. Um, and so, and then it goes through that process again and again. So these ponds are essentially used to help settle out any kind of solids. Um, so again, that debris, uh, leaves, twigs, um, they also help keep in litter. That way you're essentially keeping your own uh, contaminants or pollutants, if you will, uh, in your own area. Yeah. And so it helps clean it. Um, usually on average, a detention pond will take out between 40 and 60% of any phosphorus and any nitrogen. So what it's doing is cleaning the water system as well as helping settle out those solids. And then again, that control structure helps keep out litter and algae that's anything that's superficial on that water body. Um, so they all mostly lead to the Indian River Lagoon in our area. Again, we do have those Western sections of the county that lead to the St. John's River. Um, but the more, more ponds, that you go through for that process, the cleaner the water. Um, and so as far as the stormwater itself, uh, what the county's big mission is, is to keep that water as clean as possible and then it ha have it enter into the Indian River Lagoon or St. John's River. So what happens if contaminated stormwater drains into the Indian Lagoon? So the EPA has told us that we are an impaired water body. Um, back in 1972, the Clean Water Act went through, and in, in that, they developed what they call TMDLs, which is total maximum daily load of whatever parameter, whether it's metals or bacteria, um, nitrogen, phosphorus, they've got a whole, whole list of all that. Um, and so we're allowed up to a certain amount to have within the lagoon. And so if the stormwater that's going into the lagoon is worse, than what already exists in the lagoon. Obviously, we're in a world of hurt already. Uh, it will keep hurting our environment. Uh, we've already seen since 2011 the diversity of uh, mostly animals, uh, some of the plants, but they're they're a little bit more resilient. Uh, but mostly the animals they've left, um, not necessarily died off, but just have moved because they can't. They, either there's not enough food for them, or their habitat is destroyed. Uh, so there's, there's a population problem and, and it's changing here. Uh, we used to get a lot of sports fish, um, sawtooth fish, all, and, and now not as much. Stormwater is, is dirty. Uh, if it's going into the lagoon then, or the St. John's River, we are hurting and decreasing the water quality in that receiving water body. You mentioned the St. John's River earlier. Can you describe the impacts that stormwater has on water quality to that water body? Oh, absolutely. So the St. John's River, you know, that's that's sort of our claim to fame here, as well as the Indian River Lagoon, that uh, it's one of the only rivers that flows south to north. And we're really lucky, again, for my county, uh, because it starts just south of us. Um, it's about 310 miles long, uh, which is the longest river in Florida. And they've got all kinds of wildlife, um, a little less, uh, delete that part. They have more of the uh, mainstream Florida kind of animals. Um, so it comes to an end and enters into the ocean in Jacksonville. And so at that mouth, there's a lot more of the, uh, the salt. And so you've got manatees and dolphins, uh, bull sharks, skates, rays, fish. Um, but more on my end, on the south end, it starts in the county just south of us, Indian River County. And uh, along this path, 
it's pretty good water quality. You've got river otters, of course, gators, <laughs> bunch of shellfish, um, and of course, regular sport fish. Um, the water is a little bit brown, uh, so aerials don't do it justice. Uh, we have here in Florida a lot of plants that give off tannins, and that is naturally brown. Um, so it's it's not a problem in water quality. It's it just doesn't look as pretty as you would expect. We've got airboat places, and you know you can again go kayaking, paddleboarding, swimming. Um, but as you go farther upstream, up north, uh, you do see a tipping of the water quality, and so the St. Johns River is actually impaired as well. Uh, which is very unfortunate because there are so many cities and counties that are using that water for drinking water. And so it, usually it, it's like a side channel and it'll fill up a lake. Many municipalities actually use that as a source for drinking water mixed with the aquifer underground. So if stormwater is getting in there and, uh, and hurting the water quality of the St. John's River, maybe it's not horrible for the people at the beginning, the source of the river down south. But as you travel north, you can actually see that river water quality changing. Up in Jacksonville, it is rough. And they've, they've struggled with that water body going out into the ocean. I mean, the downtown area is beautiful. They've got bridges and fountains. But if you really look at the water, um, it's such a dark brown. Sometimes you'll get kind of bubbles where the algae is dying and, and the bacteria and it's off-gassing. So you see these bubbles, uh, a lot of litter. And so again, as each of these towns that are along the river are, uh, are adding worse water quality to it, it's getting worse and worse and worse downstream. So we have a problem with uh, the amount of people that are adding nutrients to that, that river system. Um, also, they've got a problem with metals. Uh, a lot of the boats and, uh, and cars, all that runoff brings it straight into the river. So the increased uh, solids, so all your suspended stuff, again, they've got a lot of vegetation along the river, which you would expect, but the nutrients and the metals are hurting the river. Um, so again, the diversity of wildlife uh, incredible birding out there along the St. John's River. As you go downstream, you see less and less of the animals that wildlife has realized that it's just not um, the fishing ground or habitat area that, that they want. And that affects our drinking water, is that correct? Uh, in Florida, yes. So again, there's many municipalities and counties that use the St. John's as a drinking water source. Again, the groundwater for the Florida aquifer helps kind of mix together, if you will. Uh, so many cities will take, say, two-thirds groundwater and one-third of the, of the surface water um, from the St. John's, and that's what they mix together and give the residents. Wow. So the worst, that water quality is the worst. Uh, you know, it's a struggle to clean river water anyway. Uh, so it's making it very difficult for some of these drinking water facilities to keep water clean enough. Obviously, we've got EPA regulations for what drinking water needs to be. Um, and so what they're finding is as time progresses and more and more people move here, that means more cars, more dogs, more lawns to mow, all that, um, that the water quality is decreasing, which makes their job much, much harder to clean up and be able to give people for drinking. So what can people do to minimize the effects of contaminated stormwater? So the research that we've done at the county and, and really up and down the lagoon, there's been quite a few agencies that have looked at grass clippings. 
And I know it sounds extraordinarily easy and, and maybe too simple to be that big problem uh, indicator. Grass clippings have an enormous amount of nitrogen that comes out of them and even some phosphorus um, as it dies. And so not even just the muck, but again, just in a regular, even in your, um, your curb inlet, in the, the pipes that go just for stormwater along our roads, if people don't blow their grass clippings back into their yard uh, and mulch it, essentially, if it goes into the road or the sidewalk or your driveway and it rains, that grass clipping degrades at an incredible rate. I mean, just a couple of days. And it is giving off lots and lots of nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, so that's honestly our number one uh, for homeowners uh, that will help immensely if they were to simply just mulch the grass and keep it on their lawns. Um, and then as far as like pesticides and fertilizers, we hear this all the time, uh, whether it's Roundup or uh, you know, just your generic kind of uh, fertilizers. Um, we have many people that aren't from Florida. And so when they move here, uh, I hear it all the time. Oh, I'm from where? Rochester. I love my roses and I love uh, big lush lawns that are down here in Florida. And so that's what I want is tropical and I'm going to make it happen. And so what they do is instead of following the directions on the fertilizer, they will put whatever they think is, uh, <laughs> is appropriate. And so now you have these extra nutrients just hanging out and the next rainstorm comes. Uh, it's just like a human body and you know, grass and, and ground can only hold so much. And after that, it's just going to leak out essentially. So it can't absorb all those extra nutrients. Uh, so people just need to follow the directions for fertilizer. Um, pesticides, uh, same idea. You know, th those, those fire ants, they're going to die. I promise. Just, <laughs> just put those, that, that little half a cup of the granules, uh, just like the directions say. Um, I know you really want to, you really want to kill them, but go ahead and just follow the directions. Um, and for both of those, make sure you apply when it's not going to rain. Uh, sometimes they'll say it needs a little bit of water to activate. Just do that. Don't wait for a rainstorm because that is way, way too much rain. Um, most pesticides are made to adhere to soil particles. So if you put down too much or you put it down and it doesn't have time to adhere to that soil, the rain's going to literally wash it right off and nothing that you have put down is going to work. Now it's in the water body. So pesticides are going to kill off many of the, um, the critters that live in your stormwater ponds. And then the fertilizer, well, you and I both know that's going to be just food for algae um, and the bacteria. So now you're helping these algae blooms happen. And then with the herbicides, same thing. They're made to adhere to soil particles. So if it rains and you put down herbicide, now it's going into your stormwater pond. Any kind of plant growth is going to get hurt by that. Um, and usually, so I mean, obviously that'll, that'll include algae. Um, however, it's going to take out anything else that you've got. Um, good, healthy stormwater ponds are going to have other aquatic plants, whether they're submerged or emergent, you're going to have uh, different plants and they help take up nutrients. They're good to have. Um, they help prevent erosion. And so if you've got a herbicide coming off of your lawn because you didn't want that little patch of grass in your driveway, <laughs> now it's going into your stormwater pond and it's going to kill off any of the good uh, aquatic plants that are out there. Um, so definitely paying attention to fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides.
um, dogs. So we have, we're a very dog happy county. Um, last tally that I heard was from 2019 and 65% uh, of people in Brevard County have dogs, which I thought was amazing. Um, however, that same survey said that about half of them pick up after their dogs when they go to the bathroom. That is a problem. So now not only do we have algae that loves to pair with bacteria, now we have dog waste. Um, and their <laughs> digestive systems, I mean, they're, they're a lot like us. They, they've got some of those rough bacteria that are, no pun intended, uh, that are growing in there. <laughs> and so when it hits the ground, okay, well, back, way back in the day, I remember my dad telling me, oh, don't worry about it. It's fertilizer. Well, that's nice, dad, but you weren't a biologist and that was incorrect. <laughs> um, so dog waste is not fertilizer. Uh, there are some pretty strong acids in there that hurt your grass. Uh, and then the bacteria that live in there, um, especially the E. coli, it is uh, pretty potent stuff. So again, if it rains and it gets in the water body, it's gonna promote uh, the algae growth. Um, the, you know, if you've got a pet rabbit or goat, you know, all the, the herbivores, then you're fine. Yeah, that absolutely is fertilizer and you can go ahead and keep it on your ground. No problem. And, uh, yeah, just make sure there's not too much of it. If there's rain <laughs> coming, but dogs definitely are not in that category. So, uh, picking up after dog waste, pretty important. Um, some people have septic tanks. Uh, so especially if you are close to, uh, waterways, uh, just be careful for like the leach fields. Um, there's uh, chemicals you can put in your for your septic tank to help clean it out, like Ridex, um, and that helps keep the bacteria under control. Um, but nutrients, here we go again with it's a lot of nutrients. And here in Florida, our soils are loaded with phosphorus. So like when you buy fertilizer, it's actually we've got an ordinance up and down the lagoon and most of Florida actually that uh, those three numbers on fertilizers, the middle number is for phosphorus and that's supposed to be a zero. Um, it is illegal out here to put down phosphorus um, for, your, for your fertilizers. Um, so looking at septic tanks, well, they say that it's okay to have a septic tank, but no one's saying, hey, make sure you remove the uh, nutrients before it gets to the water. Uh, so if anything, just check for leaks. Uh, if you've got an older septic tank, uh, you know, maybe have an inspector come out and make sure that there's no cracks, that it's functioning properly. Um, even drinking water uh, for leaks, we see that quite a bit um, with sprinklers. And not a lot of people relate drinking water to storm water, but again, it's still a waste of water. Bottom line is, yeah, yes, it's hitting your purse a little bit, but not too heavy. I mean, honestly, water is way cheaper than it should be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For, for the amount of importance that, that resource has for the human population, that it, you know, soda is still way more expensive. I'll never wrap my head around that. But uh, but looking for water leaks, um, if your sprinkler is just, you know, maybe a, somebody ran it over and it's just continually leaking, the amount of water is pretty staggering over a 24-hour period. It's over 100 gallons. Um, and so as that gets into the stormwater, again, you're basically creating your own rain event. So if there's litter or grass clippings or oak leaves or dog waste, whatever it is in that path, it's, it, that water is going to be taking it to the nearest low-lying area. Uh, so go ahead and check your house for water leaks. Uh, again, especially the sprinklers. Um, 
not only are you saving the drinking water and that whole process, but a little bit of money too. Uh, let's see. Oh, chemicals. Um, so as far as like oils, uh, paint, that kind of thing. I know it used to be a common practice to put the little extra bit of paint or maybe uh, when you're brushing or excuse me, when you're cleaning off your brushes, you do it outside. Well, that paint eventually is going into your stormwater pond or down the storm drain. Uh, so ne never dump chemicals. Of course, there's like there's the easy stuff like cleaning up litter. If you ever see, um, you know, trash on the ground, safely pick it up. Um, and then the like the coastal people, and this goes for Florida, the Carolinas, Virginia, wherever. Uh, living shorelines are super helpful for any water body. Um, Seawalls are nice to prevent erosion, but you're not doing the water any good. Yeah, you know, it's just it's a seawall. It's yeah, you know, it's just going to take that wave energy. Um, and eventually you'll have to replace it because it pounds it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but if you have, so like down here, mangroves uh, are generally what we use because they're really hardy and have um, branched out root systems and they filter the water at a wonderful rate. It's great habitat for fish, uh, you know, crabs, shrimp, you name it. Um, we even have a, a species of fish that is only found here in Florida called the mangrove rivulus. And it's a teeny tiny fish. Um, and it only lives in the, the root system of mangroves. Um, but more importantly, mangroves prevent erosion and they take that wave energy and, and they're able to, uh, to reduce it. That way, by the time it actually does reach the, the land of your property, um, the waves are so tiny that it's not creating uh, erosion. So living shorelines, and you can have those even around uh, small stormwater ponds. I've got, uh, I live on a pond as well, and you can have all kinds of things in fresh water um, that are pretty, that flower even. Uh, so pickerel weed, potato duck, there's lots of different types of really beautiful flowers that you can have around the edge of a stormwater pond. A lot of times as you look, if you closely look at any kind of pond, usually what you see is the grass from the you know, neighboring homes and it slowly slopes down, but then you hit the water's edge or just before it and it is a 90 degree slope. It's a safety hazard. It's gonna continue to erode. However, if you have vegetation, aquatic vegetation, that is going to minimize all of that. So getting some, some good bulrush, um, that is going to help a, improve the water quality, which is always my biggest push, but B, the erosion. You know, you don't want your house to be two feet away from the edge of a water body. Um, and you definitely don't want a steep slope. Uh, but thankfully around a lot of these stormwater ponds, people are getting more involved with the living shoreline aspect. You know, it creates a natural buffer and really all water bodies should have a buffer. You don't want some guy mowing the lawn or weed whacking literally at the edge of a water body. It's, all the grass clippings are going straight in um, along with the sediment and everything, plus the tractor ruts that you've got now from the uh, riding lawnmower. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, have a buffer. And so that's a, a natural habitat for many of, the, especially the, uh, the birds, they love it. Um, you know, and it can only, it might be only two feet and, and maybe six inches tall. It's just enough to capture anything that's going to be coming off of your lawn into that water body. Um, so that's, that's always something important. Wow, Jennifer, thank you so much. That was absolutely amazing. Oh, of course. That's my pleasure. Education, that is our, our biggest thing right now. Um, 
anyone who's interested, we've got a program called Lagoon Loyal. And so you just go to lagoonloyal.com and it's uh, all the information's right there as to what residents and businesses can do. Thank you so much again. Of course. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in finding more information about Save the Water, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're interested in contributing to our cause, you can donate at our website at savethewater.org. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button because we'll be back soon with more episodes. Thanks again.